Thank you again for joining us for services today. I want to start this message before we dive into the text. I want to show you a picture of my family. And this is from five or six years ago. I'm going to hold this, but they're going to show you on the screen large. This is my wife, Tara, and our oldest daughter, Alex, and my son, Caden. This picture was taken probably about five to six years ago. And as you can see, it's a football picture and my son played midget football and I had the privilege of being a part of the coaching staff and there's a funny story behind this picture that definitely relates to the message today and in full transparency in parency my son Caden wrestled with fear and you can't tell by this picture because this was five to six years ago but my son now is six foot four and he towers over all of us but at the time of this picture he was one of the smaller guys on the team but he played quarterback and Caden as I mentioned wrestled with fear and so as a dad I tried reminding him and guiding his thoughts to things that were true. And I don't know how I came up with this, but we started before every game. I would remind him of three things and then I would have him repeat it back to me. And sometimes this even happened in the middle of the game on the sidelines. And those those three things were this. I would have him say, I am prepared, I am equipped, And Jesus is with me. And the thought behind that was, is that he was prepared. That prior to the game time, he had done everything he could to prepare him and his teammates for that week's game. That included working out and practicing plays. He was prepared. And then the second thing was he was equipped. Meaning that the coaches and his teammates had every confidence in him, in his physical ability, that he could play that position to the best of his ability. And last but not least, you certainly know, I wanted him to know that Jesus was with him even on the football field. So he would repeat it to me, I am prepared, I am equipped, and Jesus is with me. So this picture, what made it funny was this was the last year that he played midget football. And as you can see, it was taken as a family. We were walking out to the 50-yard line, and they were taking a group family picture because this is the last year he would play football. And the photographer caught it at the perfect moment because right before the picture was taken, we were heading out to the 50-yard line, and I I said out loud to my family, I said, when we get to the 50-yard line, we should all yell, I am prepared, I am equipped, and Jesus is with me. And it caught a laugh, and the picture Uh, was taken just like this. And it's a funny story, but it's one that's absolutely true because fear is a reality all of us will face at some point or another in our life, especially now in the midst of uncertainty, the uncertainty of a pandemic and us being a couple days away from a very divisive and polarizing election. See, 24-hour news feeds and constant social media streams of information, they flood our minds with unnerving and tragic events multiple times every hour. And as, as often been the case in the news, if it bleeds, it leads, they say. It's no wonder that all of us are feeling a heightened sense of anxiety and even fear. But many of our deepest fears have very little to do even with the evening news, a pandemic, or even an election. A recent study has shown that a fear of failure, 
ranked highest among those under the age of 35. For some, a a fear of failure is paralyzing. Second on that list for young adults was a fear of disappointing others or a fear of rejection, closely followed by the fear of leading meaningless lives. Many baby boomers and older adults are facing financial fears, health concerns, and are losing people they love dearly to death. Though the highest ranking fear for those age groups, the baby boomers and older, is a fear related to the future of our country. Now, you may expect these statistics to be of those who do not put their faith and their trust in an almighty God, but that simply is not the case. This survey was of 2,500 churchgoers, and it was discovered that 80% of them indicated they were living with a moderate to significant level of fear. The reality is, Christians, you and I, Christ followers... We struggle with fear. Now, some fear is good. It can be an indicator of something dangerous lying ahead. It can be a a motivator for us to take action. But often our fears are exaggerated and they become a weapon that the enemy uses to distract and to cripple God's people. You see, when fear goes unchecked, it can lead to disobedience against God. It is clear when looking at the Bible that human beings have always wrestled with fear. Over 400 times in the Bible, fear, terror, and being afraid are mentioned in scripture. This is also why the most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid. But while scripture's most repeated command may be fear not, We also read, we are to fear the Lord. So which is it? Well, the Bible certainly does not contradict itself. Today, though, we will discover from the life of Isaac in Genesis 26 that every generation, in fact, every Christ follower, will have to decide how they handle with what I'm titling as today's message, the paradox of fear. Let us pray. Jesus, as I mentioned in the pre-service, your gift to us is a gift of peace of mind. So I pray today, specifically for those that are watching and that have tuned into this service, that are struggling and wrestling with fear. I pray that you would remove fear, you would remove anxiety, and that you would replace it with the perfect peace that you give. I pray that your word as it becomes alive and as we hear it will point out areas in each of us that we are handling fear, the fear of man inappropriately. And instead we would fear you with reverence and awe and know that you lead us to perfect peace and to perfect truth. Let it be so in your name, amen. The parallel between Isaac and Abraham's lives is suggested here at the beginning 
of our text for today, Genesis 26. Let's look at it together. Genesis 26, verse 1. A severe severe famine now struck the land, as had happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar, where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. Now, did you catch what that verse was saying? In Abraham's time, there had been a great famine. If you remember, we looked at this back in Genesis chapter 12. And looking back, we remember what happened then. Abraham, Isaac's dad, was faced with a very similar circumstance, a famine. And we remember how he responded. Abraham failed to trust God and instead he went down to Egypt where he pretended that his wife Sarah was his sister, getting him into a lot of trouble with Pharaoh. Now, reacting out of fear and taking the situation into his own hands, Abraham threatened the very promise of God. So here now, we see his son Isaac faced with the same situation, and we look to him to see how he's going to respond. Sadly, Isaac exhibited the same lack of faith and repeated the same sin as his father. Now, while Isaac did not actually go to Egypt, he stopped at Gerar and God then appeared to him. So let's continue in this, looking at verse 2. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you to. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham, your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all of these lands. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements commands, decrees, and instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. It seems an extraordinary, an unusual thing that we can fall into sin as Isaac did immediately after receiving a great blessing. But our nature is such that this is possible. And it's exactly what happened to Isaac. Let's look as we start in verse seven. The Bible says that when the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebecca, Isaac said, she is my sister. He was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought they will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. Just before this major collapse of judgment based on fear, Isaac had encountered God and he had received a reiteration of the promise of God he had made, God had made to Isaac's dad, Abraham. Now, so far as we know, this was the very first time in Isaac's entire life that God had spoken to him directly. On the basis of that experience, Isaac should have been flying high in faith. But immediately after this encounter, here we find Isaac caving into fear, repeating the sin of his father, and lying about his wife for his own self-protection. 
Which leads me to the first point. Fear makes smart people do dumb things. Here, God had appeared to Isaac to say that he would bless him. He said that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, that he would give him all the lands promised to his father Abraham, and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Yet here was Isaac worrying and crippled by fear as to whether or not God would preserve his life in the Philistine territory. Strange? Absolutely. Sad? Yes. But no stranger or sadder than our own failure to trust that God will care for us. Think of this. Isaac probably only knew of just a few miracles, only a handful of miracles in his lifetime. The creation, the flood, the miracle of his own birth, and he certainly remembered his life being spared on the altar of Moriah. But think about you and I. Think about us, the body of believers, the church. We know many miracles. We have the entire Old Testament with its many great feats and miracles. We have the New Testament. We confess belief in a miraculous birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We believe in Pentecost, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and in the birth of the church. We acknowledge our own new birth through salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Each of us probably have our own testimony after testimony of how God has worked incredibly and powerfully in our life. And we proclaim to have the hope of one day spending eternity in heaven with the Father. Yet when famine comes into our life, when trouble and difficulty comes, when a pandemic comes, when civil unrest comes, when political tensions arise, we, like Abraham and Isaac, fear for our safety and we often sin out of that fear. Fear is one of the greatest weapons that the enemy uses to bring disruption and destruction into our lives. It's most likely the reason that it is the most repeated commandment in the Bible. Do not fear. So simply put, fear is the opposite of faith. Fear calls God a liar and denies that he will keep his promises. Fear rejects God and his promises, such as we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. So I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Fear when not controlled gives evidence that a person does not believe that God is telling the truth and that he can't be trusted to have one's best interest at heart. Let me give you three characteristics of unbiblical fear, or as I'm calling it, the fear of man. Here they are, characteristics of unbiblical fear. One, the fear of man begins with wrong thinking. You see, Isaac feared the Philistine men. As the Bible said, we just read, he thought they would kill him for his wife. Jesus reminds us in the eighth chapter of John, who is the father of lies? Satan is, the enemy. I love it. Jesus even says that's his native language. The native language of the enemy, the one against you and I, 
is lies. He uses lies. And it begins with our thoughts. Fear, unbiblical fear, begins with our thoughts. Two, the fear of man leads to disobedience and sin. Just like Abraham, Isaac's father, Isaac's fear, his fear of what would happen in the Philistine territory led him to taking control of his own situation and lying about who Rebekah was. And that fear led him to decide something instead of trusting in God. God calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. Fear reverses that and causes us to walk by sight, not by faith. The third thing that unbiblical fear does, the fear of man destroys our witness to the world. Look at this intently in the 26th chapter, verse 8. Sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, he looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. Immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, She is obviously your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac replied, Because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me. How could you do this to us? Abimelech exclaimed. One of my people might have easily taken your wife and slept with her, and you would have made us guilty of a great sin. If we disobey God, which fear leads us to, there will usually be an unbeliever watching from a window. Let me remind you today that as Christians, as Christ followers, the world is watching. And if we do not get control of fear, if we don't give our fear to Jesus, to the Father, to the Holy Spirit, and allow him to work that through in us and in our minds... We will move from fear to disobedience and the world will watch from a window. Let me remind you, church, that today the world is watching how we as a church, as Christ followers, respond to a pandemic, respond to an election, respond to the world around us. We're people of faith, not people of fear. While we see that fear is an enemy and a tactic of Satan, it is a paradox that a Christian must have fear. It just has to be the right kind of fear. It's what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. You see, in Matthew, Jesus was giving instructions to his disciples and he was about ready to send them out to the world to heal, to pray, and to cast out demons. And Jesus says this in the 10th chapter of Matthew. He's sending out his disciples. And he says to them, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows, one copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than the whole flock of sparrows. The psalmist reminds us in one, the 11th chapter, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. All who obey his commandments will grow in wisdom. So I gave you three characteristics 
of unbiblical fear, the fear of man. Let me give you three characteristics of what it means to fear the Lord, of biblical fear, the type of fear you and I are supposed to have. The fear of the Lord, one, begins with right thinking. Where I said the fear of man begins with wrong thinking. This right thinking involves understanding who God is, what his character is, who he's called us to be. Having a right understanding of our own identity and the identity and character of God. Two, while the fear of man leads to disobedience and sin, the fear of the Lord leads to obedience and blessing. You see, the fear of the Lord involves reverence. It involves respect and acknowledgement that God is our creator, our maker, our heavenly king and father. And third, the fear of the Lord builds a testimony before others. Whereas the fear of man destroys our witness to the world. When we have a healthy respect, reverence and fear of the Lord, it will build our testimony before others. As the Bible says, let your good works shine before men. We will be that city on a hill. We will be that light into darkness when we have a healthy fear of the Lord. You see the fear of of the Lord is the ultimate antidote for the fear of man. Fear of man calls us to shrink back, disobey, and run. But the fear of the Lord calls us to be courageous and obedient and to enter in. Fear of man tells us we need to take control of our situation like Abraham and Isaac. But the fear of the Lord reminds us that God is in control. Fear of man tells us to care about what others think. But the fear of the Lord reminds us that God's opinion is the only one that matters. Fear of man tells us to place our hope in our security in people and in power. But the fear of the Lord reminds us that our faith and our trust must be in him alone. Fear of man tells us that our identity is found in what we do. But the fear of the Lord reminds us that we are heirs of the king. Fear of the man always leads us to shame, disobedience, and destruction. Fear of the Lord, though, leads us to life and life abundantly. Fear of man is paralyzing. But the fear of the Lord is liberating. So you may be asking today, how do we do this? I'm a practical person. <laughs> I like hearing practical application. Great, you may be saying, Pastor Allen, but how do we do that? How do we walk in the fear of the Lord? Walking in the fear of the Lord comes only through prayer and meditating on God's word. Walking in the fear of the Lord comes through prayer and meditating on God's word. The psalmist in 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Paul writes in Romans 12, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, pleasing, and perfect. Paul says, if you want transformation, you have to change the way you think. Remember, both the fear of man and the fear of the Lord. What was the first characteristic? It was thinking. Changing your thinking. How do our thoughts change? By meditating on God's word. By hiding God's word into our heart. That's why I love what 
our children's ministry are doing with this James adventure. They are starting with our kids at such a young age, having them memorize scripture, that hiding God's word into their heart, it will be an opportunity for them to lean into God's word so that when fear comes, when uncertainty comes, they can recall the truth of Jesus. It's why Bible intake is so important. And I like using the word intake instead of just reading because we can be with creative with ways in which we intake God's word. The ways in which we can meditate on God's word. Yes, reading God's word, studying God's word is so critical. Having those moments in the morning or in the evening or during the day, times that are set aside when we read and when we study. But there are also ways that you can put God's word, intake God's word into your heart. Some of you, I I have a 30-minute commute every morning. You can listen to God's word in the car. There are technology free apps where you can download the Bible on your phone and even have it played back to you. However it is you choose to take God's word and to put it into your heart, into your mind, into your thoughts. That's what it means to meditate on God's word. Something we do in our house that I believe helps direct our thoughts is to take post-it notes and to take scripture verses that speak against fear and truth and remind us who we are and who God is and the promises of God. Take those and put them up in locations of your house where you see them often, on the bathroom mirror, on the refrigerator. Find ways in which you can allow God's word to remind you of who you are. Remember this, I wanted to reiterate to my son, you're prepared, you're equipped and you're God and God is with you. Being prepared and equipped, though it was a silly illustration with my son for football, the same is true spiritually. We will be prepared when we pray, when we go before the father and have communion with him, when we take God's word. He has equipped us with the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome fear. And Jesus is always with us. Remind yourself of God's truth. So here we are. This week, maybe more than any other week in this year, we desperately need Christ followers who will walk in the fear of the Lord and not in the fear of man. This coming Tuesday will be an election in our country. And while there are polarizing thoughts and opinions, while we are a nation that is divided and even, I dare say, a church that has been divided globally, we've allowed politics in. I am asking that we would spend Monday, November 2nd, the day before the election, I'm asking you to prayerfully consider joining me in a time of fasting and prayer. Let me explain. This isn't a time for us to pray and to fast for our preferred candidate. I'm not asking you to pray and to fast for a desired outcome. I'm asking if you're willing, maybe some of you are willing to fast from a meal the entire day on Monday, on Monday. For others of you, maybe it's one meal. Some of you, you may want to fast social media for a day. You may want to fast technology. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what you should fast. But whatever it is, and for however long, on Monday, 
I'm asking our church to come together, to fast and to pray that we would be a people regardless of what happens on Tuesday, but on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and in the days, weeks, months, and years that follow, that we would be a people that would not act out of our fear or walk in fear, but we would be a people that act and walk in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man. That we would trust in God's sovereignty. And that although we may be diverse in opinions, we would remain unified. Prayerfully consider joining me on Monday for a time of prayer and fasting. So that leads us today to the table of the Lord in a time of communion. I'm gonna ask that right where you are, if you have those communion elements in your family, if you gather them together, I have mine here. What I love about communion is that it is not only a picture of Christ's death and sacrifice on a cross and his blood that was shed for us and our healing, but it's also a reminder that he is with us always. The Bible says that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took some bread, he gave thanks to God for it, and he broke it into pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we take this today, remember that his body was shed for you and that he is always with us. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Partake of the cup with me. Today, right where you are, I'm going to invite you to join with me and to sing the right song on the right side before Tuesday. I know you will know this song. So can we just conclude our service today? Let's do this together. Tis so sweet. To trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to trust upon his promise, just to know the safe Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for. 
to trust Him more. Father, my prayer today is that that song, those lyrics, would be the score of your church over the next few days. God, I pray that we would learn to trust you more. That the fear of man that has crippled so many Christians would turn into the fear of the Lord. That our lack of trust, our lack of maybe even belief that you do have all things under control, that we would repent of that, that it would be washed out and driven out, and that it would be replaced with a right kind of fear, a reverence, a respect, a faith, a burden, knowing that regardless of any outcome, we are smack dab in the middle of your hands and that your Holy Spirit leads us, empowers us, and equips us for the work of your kingdom. I pray a blessing on every home, on every family, on every marriage, on every child from the youngest to the oldest today, that we would lift our head high knowing that you are with us and that you have gone before us. Let it be so in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.